0: Welcome to Climate Optimist. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd DeScheide. Thanks as always for tuning in. If you are a social media person, we're asking folks to uh, follow us on both Facebook and Instagram at Climate Optimist Podcasts. We've been really excited about the number of folks who are listening to the podcast, but sadly, I think my grandma probably has more Facebook followers than we do. So <laughs> when you get a chance, search for Climate Optimist Podcast on either Facebook or Instagram and follow us make it rain. (laughs) So this week we'll be focusing on the topic of climate refugees and the many challenges those folks face. As climate impacts like droughts, hurricanes, and floods grow worse, the number of people being forced to abandon their homes is rapidly expanding. But before we tackle that cheery topic, want to focus on this week's reason for hope, An EPA rule slashing hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, is set to go in effect next month. Uh, HFCs are used in things like refrigeration and air conditioning. As a greenhouse gas, they are hundreds to thousands of times more potent. So a little bit makes a huge difference. And the U.S. is planning to cut HFCs by a total of 85% over the next 15 years, which is exciting. Those cuts are expected to lead to a savings of 4.5 billion tons of co2 wow yeah which is the roughly the equivalent i guess of three years of emissions from our power sector geez isn't that crazy yeah it is i i knew they were a potent greenhouse gas i had no idea they were
1: this big of an impact yeah i wonder if they're going to replace them with a better refrigerant or some different type of chemical or something
0: yeah, I believe, you know, industry has been working on several replacements, and mm. those are what are being phased in as these hydrofluorocarbons are being phased out. You know, interesting point about hydrofluorocarbons is they were initially intended to be a replacement for those refrigerants that were depleting the ozone layer, if right. remember that. Oh, yeah. And, you know... Well, clearly they succeeded in protecting the ozone layer. They just <laughs> created another, help fast track climate change. Yeah, wow. It, it almost reminds me of those pharmaceutical commercials where you know they offer to fix one problem and then create about 10 more. And then
1: they have that guy that talks really fast. And he's like, this might cause you to bleed out of your eyes and kill your <laughs> entire family. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so that's our reason for hope. Well, I guess before we dive in, To the climate refugee situation, we should uh, provide a little context. Since 2010, an average of 21.5 million people per year are being displaced due to weather-related events. And according to IEP, which is an Australian think tank, the number could grow to over 1.2 billion, which is staggering. And in 2018, the UN adopted the Global Compact on Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration, And that acknowledges the problem of climate refugees and obviously calls on governments to protect them. And so there is an awareness of what's going on, but, you know, it's obvious that the global response has been a little inadequate to deal with the problem. So
0: although the issue of climate refugees is global, we thought with this episode we'd focus in on Central America, where, you know, a combination of hurricanes, floods, and droughts are, you know, hitting what are already poverty-stricken countries The U.S. uh, Border Patrol tracks apprehensions, which are viewed as sort of a proxy for people crossing. And in 2010, you had about 50,000 people apprehended from Central America, and that number has grown steadily. 2014, there was a spike of 250,000, and then in 2016, the number reached 409,000. Wow. Massive. Yeah. So our guest today, to help us better understand the situation in Central America is Rachel Game. Rachel is an immigration attorney and a member of the Immigration Lawyers Association and has been practicing law for 15 years. She's lived in several different countries in her life and has been an immigrant herself. Her time serving clients from countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador gives her a unique perspective on climate change and the complex role it plays in driving folks to make the journey to the United States border. So Rachel, welcome to uh, Climate Optimus.
2: Hello, Jason.
0: Happy to have you. So we start all our guests out with the same question, which is when you think about efforts to address climate change, you know, what what gives you hope?
2: Well, I am a mom, so I guess my children give me hope that hopefully they're going to just be a lot more responsible and bright and looking at this situation more seriously than the generations before them. And that gives me some hope. Yeah. As an immigration attorney, what gives me hope is I can see that there is some thinking going on internationally. And even with the current administration, there's some movement towards recognizing the scope of the problem.
0: Probably not quickly enough, but it's it's happening. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, since, you know, focus of our topic today is really talking about immigration created by climate change. Let's start out with, you know, what is a climate refugee? You know, kind of what's, is there an official definition? What does that look like?
2: Well, there's an official definition of what a refugee is. But when we think about people who are displaced because of climate change, basically we'd look at, okay, who's moving internally? And then we have other people who just decide to pick up and leave their country and go somewhere else.
0: So thinking about your work specifically, a lot of the folks that you're dealing with are coming from the northern triangle which as i understand it is guatemala, honduras and el salvador and that honduras and, and guatemala specifically are hugely impacted by climate change what's the current situation like
2: a lot of the clients that i'm seeing that are coming in they are affected by food insecurity but the other thing that's really plaguing that those nations are um, the violence and corruption and extortion, and it's crushing poverty. And so it's really hard to determine what is causing that amount of poverty, and could it be climate change, and we're just not calling it that at this point? Right. I think that has really piqued my interest in representing these people is to find out exactly what is happening. So we look at, you know, the coffee plantations down there, and they have drought. And then there's some pests that have attacked the coffee and, you know, just causing uh, massive losses, unemployment.
0: And it seems like it's, to your point, it's like, it seems like you got a lot of different factors in play. And so it's hard to Hard to tease out what's sort of the true driver or maybe it's sort of a combination thereof.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, Jason, is that it, it's hard also for people who maybe have never even left their village and they're indigenous and they just know that, you know, there there hasn't been rain in three years. And then there was a hurricane and then there was a flood and then there was a landslide and they don't know why their landscape is changing in their country. So in, in that respect, I think, you know, we owe it to, as being, you know, the driver of these emissions, we owe it to our neighbors in the, um, in the South to help them find solutions for what they're going through. Yeah, I like your point about the fact that as
0: the biggest United States, the biggest contributor to climate change historically, you know, we, we do sort of owe it to these folks, given that their contribution is, you know, infinitesimally small in comparison. Yeah.
2: I think historically too the US has done very well with accepting immigrants. We as a country accept more immigrants than any other country in the world. So I think we are a country of immigrants and so hopefully there's going to be an appetite nationally to help find a solution for this.
0: So that leads to one of my questions which is are there you know estimates out there of the volume of immigrants we're expected to see seeking kind of asylum in the U.S. because of climate change. And we kind of look out at, you know, 20, 30 years.
2: Yeah. I, I read that the World Bank, they're projecting 4 million people from Central America and Mexico will be climate migrants by 2050. Wow. So that's not including our Caribbean neighbors. Right. Like Haiti.
0: So those, those numbers are certainly daunting. I guess... For me, it always makes sense to kind of connect to, to kind of the human side. And what are you hearing from your clients? What I mean, what is this like for them?
2: Yeah. And most of the people that I'm seeing from the Northern Triangle right now are, I'd say most of my clients are from Guatemala and from Quetzaltenango and Huehuetenango. And they are mountainous, indigenous, and you know, these people have a really strong connection to their land and to their communities. You know, I had this one young man and he he was telling me, you know, that he had been working in agriculture and it was just too hard. And then his mom got sick and, you know, he was 16. It struck me because when he wanted to leave, you know, I gave him some things to fill out and I'm going to help you. And he wants to leave and he comes back in. He says, I'm not sure how to work the elevator. (laughs) So, you know, we're just... These people, they're, they're so warm and I really love working with them. And, you know, when you hear them and you hear their stories and who they've left behind and you have families that are being separated, have mothers who, you know, half their kids have been left in the care of grandparents down there. It just makes me want to help them. But at the same time, I also have to be realistic that our asylum laws and our laws in this country just don't offer protection for these people.
0: So, yeah, so given that that's the case, I mean, is it current state that all of these folks that are coming to you are eventually going to have to make their way back to Mexico or to country of origin? Or is it about teasing out pieces that sort of fit within the existing asylum laws where they might be able to make a case?
2: We're trying to. So asylum laws right now in the U.S., They and this is based on, international law that we've adopted in this country. We will protect people who are fleeing their country because of persecution. So that's, you know, pretty serious harm based on religion, politics, or your political opinion, um, race, national origin, or a particular social group that you might fit into. And you know, the law is something that's always changing. So we're always making new arguments. We're we're trying to sculpt it in ways that addresses the current situation. There was a really interesting UN case that came out. It was a a man, his family from Carabas, and they it's a central um, central Pacific nation island and the sea level there is rising. And so he goes to New Zealand, asks for protection, Ask for asylum. They ultimately deny him. He appeals to the UN. They, they uphold his deportation, but they also write, governments must take into account the human right violations that are being caused by climate crisis when considering deportation of asylum seekers. That's pretty huge. Wow. So if, if I get a case where I really feel like this is the root cause of why this person is here is because of climate change, I'm going to include that. And then gradually... As advocates, if we just start making these arguments and and pressuring, then the jurisprudence or the way that these judges are deciding the cases, they can you can start to see a shift.
0: That's interesting. It and it seems like the reality is this is whatever we're seeing today is a fraction of what you know we're going to be seeing down the road. Yeah. And then I know before we uh, before we hopped on the interview, you were talking about the and you mentioned earlier this idea of like internal displacement versus external displacement. But I don't think I appreciated how much more challenging that could be in a place like Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador, where it isn't just about, you know, get the U-Haul to rock and load up your (laughs) stuff. Right. I don't know if you could talk about that a little bit and sort of what the complications are associated and, and how that, you know, probably leads to some degree to additional traffic coming towards the U.S.,
2: yeah, well, when when you look at the Northern Triangle and you look at trying to move internally, you have to you you can't separate it from the problem of the gangs that are there. So, MS-13 and Barrio 18 are these really brutal street gangs that control. They're almost pseudo like a pseudo government down there. They control who lives in um, who who's able to live in a neighborhood, who's coming and going. And so it's not like you can just pick up and leave and like just go to a new neighborhood because maybe you've left MS-13 territory and now you're gonna be living in Barrio 18 territory. And so people do not find it easy to just pick up and leave. And also there's different languages. So these are indigenous people. They're all, uh, you know, the indigenous people, they're Mayan descent, but there's many, many different languages that they speak.
0: Not only is it easier to do in the U.S., it sounds like even though these countries are much smaller, they're much less homogeneous. That
2: Yeah, I mean, you have people that it's interesting to me because they'll be all the way up here in Oregon. But when I ask them about other places within their own country, it's almost like, like well, I wouldn't go there. And it's like why not? Well, I'm not from there. And I think but you're not from here either and you came here <laughs> but you know it just shows kind of my lack of understanding like that you don't just move around those places like we do in this country. Interesting. Although although uh US asylum law expects people to do that. Expects
0: people to move around within to there. To
2: first, you know, if it's possible, to um, do internal relocation. So if if gang members are bothering you in the village where you live, then they would say, well, why didn't you just move to Guatemala City? And then this tiny little indigenous woman will say, well, I didn't know anyone there, plus I speak my dialect, and I don't speak Spanish, and so I couldn't and I've lost a lot of cases where they you know all the boxes to win are checked but my client didn't try to move internally first and the judge just says you know well you could have tried
0: it seems like there's this because there's this lack of understanding you have these you have these arbitrary rules that don't necessarily reflect the nature of you know these countries to begin with
2: yeah I think that that's too generous, Jason, to say that it's a lack of understanding. I think it's a lack of political will. These judges in immigration court are political appointees, basically. So what we see is that they they're they're not independent judges. They work for the executive branch. and if they you know, they could just as easily f- say, Oh, well, that makes sense and they can accept our experts' declarations. But when there's just overall a mandamus telling judges you know we we expect you to deny a certain amount of cases then uh, that's Almost the like a does. quota yeah wow I if you approve if me. you approve too many cases you lose your job as an immigration judge wow
0: i had no idea that's crazy which makes your job even harder <laughs> <laughs> so when we think about the immigration system you know what can be done from your perspective to better support
2: you know climate refugees well, I think Congress could change the laws and okay. be inclusive to, to understand that people are coming here due to climate. Uh, barring that, I spoke about it before, but it's just having our courts and really looking to our circuit appellate courts um, to interpret existing laws in a way that sort of how the UN did, which is to understand that you know human rights are being violated due to climate change. And- allowing people to make their claims that fit into the existing law. And, you know, we've seen that that can happen. We have decided as a country to protect women fleeing domestic violence. So there is precedent that, that we can shift and shape who we want to protect. So
0: it sounds like it's not a quick process, but certainly a hopeful message that that things can change. And so I guess... Thinking outside of sort of what changes can we make to our immigration system, what can be done in sort of the countries themselves in terms of support to help them be able to become more resilient, you know, in the face of, of climate change and these disasters?
2: There's disaster risk reduction, and that would be local, regional, national, and international measures that are implemented to reduce the risk of the climate factors that are already happening, like droughts, cyclones, earthquakes, and tsunamis. So
0: sort of acknowledging they're going to happen. They're going to happen, get prepared.
2: Um, you know, so that would be, and I'm definitely not an expert in this, but, you know, going back to replanting trees where there's been deforestation changing the what seeds you're planting or drought resistant crops. And, um, so I know that that's happening. And then there's climate change adaptation. And those are programs that focus on future climate change risks and with like sustainable development agendas. And then lastly, you know, the Biden administration has issued an executive order in February 2021 to uh, direct his agencies to uh, come up with proposals and write reports on migration and climate change. And he's earmarked $4 billion to... Uh, of aid to that region. The, the overall program is looking at the root causes of what's driving this migration. But a good chunk of that is going to go towards studying climate change and then just supporting those governments in, in a way that they can take that aid and, and make, make a difference for the people there and not just let it fall into corruption and right. misappropriation.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But that's that really is another hugely complicating factor. I mean, it's one thing to give aid to a country where you know, it's going to be spent on the folks that are being impacted by Mm -hmm. something. But when you don't, when you don't know when you can't necessarily trust the government, that adds a whole other layer of complexity.
2: And also a lot of those governments, they have a lot of distrust for us as well, because we've been meddling in their internal affairs for a long time, you know. El Salvador and Guatemala both had incredibly brutal civil wars that the U.S. was deeply involved in. So I think they're looking at us with circumspect. Um, Hey, you know, we don't want to be recolonized by anybody as well. So it's like a balance, I think, for us to help and then not impose ourselves on our neighbors.
0: Right. Delicate balance. So from where you sit, you you know, what kind of gives you hope when you're engaging with these folks that are coming to the country and thinking about what the future looks like for them?
2: Well, I guess my hope would be that I wouldn't ever have to have another meeting with a 15-year-old who's been displaced and left his family. And my hope would be that he would be able to just continue going to school in his country and never have to take that trip north. And then when I get to know my clients, I'm always struck by how incredibly resilient they are. They are hardworking, they're resilient, and they have a very deep attachment to their land. And that gives me hope that if we offer them solutions to be able to stay where they're from and stay on their land, that they're going to want to stay and that they're not going to be displaced and that they can continue their culture and have their grandchildren around them and, you know, not, not have to be up in the United States, um, so far away from everything that they hold dear.
0: What would be your advice to, you know, to us and to listeners if we want to, you know, help make a difference in terms of the lives of these folks that are being, you know, impacted by climate?
2: Well, right now there are several bills stalled in Congress that have immigration reform. And one of them is a farm workers bill and, Since we know that people that are coming here, they want to work and farmers need work, workers, I would say call your members of Congress and ask them to get that law passed so that our farmers can bring in the employees they need. And it's a win-win. And when you look at where the money goes, that money is going directly back to the communities. So if we're Again, looking at, you know, how are these communities going to prepare themselves for the next hurricane or prepare themselves for drought? Those measures take money. And it's not like here where, you know, the government's just giving them the money. People have to raise the money themselves. And so allowing members of their family to lawfully work here or come into this country and work, that money will go directly back to those communities.
0: So by allowing these folks to, to come in, you creating a lifeline for their, you know, families that are still back then in in these areas.
2: Totally. And the UN says that it's much less expensive to put money into disaster risk reduction than to do nothing until the problems have already happened, until these people are faced with these catastrophes, and then you're trying to clean it up.
0: And it sounds like for those folks that are wanting to come here, helping these bills across the finish line so that they have a a vehicle to work legally, and then send those monies back to their, their
2: right, families. and then and then that money will help that the rest of their family does doesn't have to come, or eventually that they could go home.
0: I'm glad you're leaving us in a more hopeful place, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on and sharing some of your knowledge with us on the topic. It certainly feels like a very complex one, and I can't imagine working in that world day to day. So, yeah, thank you for making the time to to chat with us and it sounds like there's a potential for us to to continue this conversation down the road.
2: Thanks for letting me come on and talk about my clients and who these people are and what issues that they're facing and I think it's important to know we hear statistics and we see these, you know, images on our television or our screens, but just that behind each one of those numbers is a family and people who have their own things going on and their hopes and dreams. And, you know, they're just people trying to get by.
0: Yeah. It's a great point. Well, thank you, Rachel. So Todd, listening to Rachel talk about the situation in the the Northern Triangle, what did you, uh, what do you think?
1: Well, it's, it's obviously not easy stuff to hear, you know, obviously there's a lot of people in in a bad way and in, in trouble and, and you can see why why they're trying to migrate. I think there's yeah. sometimes a misconception here that these people are just kind of like hanging on the beach down there, and they're like, I want to go up to the United States and have a big <laughs> house and a big nice car, and they come up here. But, you know, it, it'd probably be more akin to everybody in your neighborhood is getting, you know, murdered. Or dying of a, hunger. Or dying of hunger, and you just leave with a backpack and try to walk to Canada and hope you get in. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it feels like to me. I, mean, I think that's a probably more realistic comparison. You're right, though. I mean, there is a huge disconnect. I think between
0: what people perceive is going on, especially when they see you know photos of the border and what's actually happening. Right. As a result.
1: Uh, but I I love the interview and the fact that it really highlighted the human stories of the problems we're talking about. I do think and I don't say this lightly that I think the US and you know the international community you know are going to have to do a little bit more than they have been historically to fix this problem. You know, it's I it's interesting for me to look a little bit at the history of kind of U.S. involvement in Central America, which is why I don't say lightly that I think the U.S. needs to do more, because the U.S. has actually been pretty heavily involved in some of these countries historically, and most of the time I feel like it's been to their detriment. What do you mean? I mean, I thought <laughs> I thought the U.S. was a benevolent source for good in the world, <laughs> and
0: that, you know, it was all about uh, uh, rainbows and unicorns.
1: Well, as you know, sometimes things are a little misguided, and sometimes people's definition of Democracy and and what is good can also be a little distorted. I don't know if listeners are familiar with the coup in 1954 in Guatemala. A lot of people, I think, are maybe more familiar with the late 70s in Nicaragua and the Contras and the Sandinistas, which I find it odd that just until here recently, the one country that didn't seem to be sending a lot of refugees north was Nicaragua, which was the only country out of all of them that seem to be pretty successful at giving us the finger and saying, <laughs> thank you, but no. <laughs> so, like I said, I think there's been some involvement from the U.S. there that hasn't necessarily helped these folks out over the years. But conversely, I think it's going to take our help to get them out of it.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's one of those things where it's much easier to sort of write the check than than to ensure that it gets spent in the right in the right ways
1: exactly and the the current white house and biden administration they're proposing you know an aid package of 4 billion dollars a couple of the bullet points of this plan are about food security and climate smart agriculture which is obviously stuff we're talking about climate adaptation and clean energy is another part of this plan there's stuff happening but i think it's it's going to take a while you know i i don't think any of these plans that we're talking about is going to you know turn things around in 2 years it's it's going to be it's going to be a long haul. Yeah, it seems like time and
0: given that these things take time, you know, really targeted persistence from the government on our side and, you know, ensuring that this isn't something that's a that's a headline and then gets forgotten about. Definitely. It was interesting to look into kind of what's been happening there on the ground. I, I didn't, before doing research on the topic, realize that, you know, Guatemala and Honduras have been over the last 20 years, consistently in the top 10 of what's called the Climate Risk Index. So really sort of at the epicenter of being impacted by climate change. A hopeful message for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think it's good to shed the light on it and to be eyes wide open about the situation. And if we ask sort of, you know, what are the reasons to be hopeful? I, I think there are still some, despite, you know, the current situation. You know, clearly talking to racial, you've got a population of people that are extremely resilient. And so if we're able to provide resources in the right places, that makes a big difference. And clearly we've got a recognition of the of the problem, which doesn't solve it, but that's, you know, that's the first step. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on...
1: Yeah, I think those countries are, are, are working to adjust farming methods and to find methods to conserve water. The truth is, is that uh, you know, we don't want them to come here, in my opinion, not because we don't like them, but I don't want them to come here because I want them to feel like they can stay where they're at.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And and in the meantime, you know, to your point, like we need to be finding a better way to help those folks that are trying to come here, creating, a, you know, a legal mechanism for them to do that so that, you know, they can be sending the money back to their families and helping make ends meet while hopefully the international efforts you know, start to kick in. Definitely. So as always, this all leads to the question of, you know, what can we do? I did a fair amount of research on different organizations that are involved in, you know, various parts of the effort of helping refugees. And, you know, one that floated to the top was an organization called Refugees International. They focus on investigating the challenges that displaced people face, creating policy solutions to, to address those challenges and then and then demanding action. So if you want to give, you want to help out, that's an organization to consider. And our second action opportunity for the week is we want to continue our efforts to push to get a carbon tax and rebate included in the Democrats' budget reconciliation efforts, so aka the Build Back Better bill. And so this week, we want to kind of pivot back and focus on ensuring that the White House knows that as Americans, we're supportive of this strategy, because at the end of the day, they're going to have the biggest single sway in terms of deciding whether a carbon tax and rebate becomes reality. As always, we'll have talking points on our website, but what we'd like people to do is just send a quick Facebook or Instagram message to the White House accounts, and I know it can seem like it, you know how does one person matter but it really is a numbers game i mean this isn't unlike the idea of like voting and how does my individual vote count well we know that if we all pitch in and do this together that we can actually make a difference so that's it thanks for tuning in to this week's episode and come back next week for more climate solutions reasons for hope and ways each of us can make a difference Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.